Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. As I'm excited for this one. We have a very special guest. John Reeve. And if you haven't heard of John Reeve, he's the author of Failure Modes to Failure Codes, a great book. So check that out. John, how are you today? Doing wonderful, Rob. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Thanks for thanks for coming on. I'm excited about this one. I, you have a lot of expertise in, in this stuff, and I'm excited to pick your brain. Well, okay. Well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess before we jump right into it, can you give us just an introduction about you? Like, how'd you get your start in maintenance and reliability? Well, a real short answer is um, I was a a maximal consultant uh, starting out um, uh, many years ago. um, And then I crossed over into uh, industry best practice practice knowledge, uh, um, especially when I started attending the um, reliability-centric venues, not just the software-centric venues. And so that really opened up my eyes to the larger world of asset management. And failure modes to failure codes, can you give us a little induction to it and where can people get it? Well, uh, it is uh, available on Amazon. And um, so failure modes to failure codes, that's the title. It could have been called failure codes to failure modes going the other direction. The the hidden agenda there really is not the codes. The end game is not the codes. The end game is a chronic failure analysis, which is an advanced process. And it's uh, primarily operated by the reliability team and using a failure analytic to uh, analyze the worst offenders, bad actors, and then once you select one of those, uh, say, top 10, you drill down on one of them uh, using this failure mode data that we captured on the work order. And so in in summary, the trick is the, the book is titled Failure Modes to Failure Codes because that's the critical piece at the start of the process where maybe hmm, 80% of all sites are not properly capturing yet today. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen it captured that well over my career. Now, one thing that you've mentioned, right, you've made a distinction between chronic failure modes or chronic failures and I guess your one-off big failures. How do you go into the CMMS and pull that data out or where should it be captured? Well, uh, yes, let's uh, comp- uh, make a distinction between chronic failure analysis and root cause analysis. So uh, RCA is a major event. It should have formal trigger points such as uh, personnel injury, uh, catastrophic failure, public uh, environmental uh, disaster, and that would have uh, one or several work orders to capture that. Again, they would have trigger points. You can't be doing an RCA every week or or even every two weeks. You just because it takes a long time to do it properly to arrive at the root cause. Okay, so that's RCA in my left hand. Now the there's another gentleman uh, titled uh, Charles Latino, and there is a Latino family, um, and they talk about uh, these uh, smaller failures, which I call they're recurring, but I call them chronic failure. I call it chronic failure analysis. And these things, when you step back and add them up, can are significant because uh, they could represent up to 40 to 50% of your maintenance costs over a period of time. And if that's true, well, we should definitely, we in the reliability world, should definitely be focusing on these things and and figure out how to stop these bad actors. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And when you're talking about the Latino family, Bob's been on the show to talk about that as well. And it actually even popped up, I guess it'll be a few weeks ago now with Peter Horsberg in the five habits of extraordinary reliability engineers is this chronic failure analysis. And it's something that I've done in my career. And I think that it's it's definitely something that reliability people need to be doing. Like you need to be pulling this data out of whatever system you're using, aggregating it, and ideally normalizing it over either an annual basis, multi-annual basis. So then you really see how much it's like, if you really see on that Pareto chart that you're going to make, how much impact it's having on your system. Exactly. So you mentioned that 80% of the plants don't capture the chronic failure data, like the failure modes and the failure codes. How would you recommend that they start implementing that process? Oh boy, that that's a big question. No, you know, you know, this is like uh, this is this is an advanced process, and so there's going to be definitions, and in the process itself, there's going to be key roles involved, and of course the uh, the data. So the if I, the first thing I would do with a uh, an organization that expressed interest in this area would be, well, let's spend the first hour going through definitions. So we need to define what a failure mode is. And uh, one of my favorite books is by Douglas Plucknett, and his book is RCM Blitz. And when I read that book, it was at that moment that I had my aha moment uh, where I recognized, well, he's uh, emphasizing that a failure mode is really three pieces of information. And so it's the failed component, the component problem, and the cause code. 
and and then he backed it up by saying, well, SAEJA 1011 uh, standard uh, actually discusses the same thing in detail. And um, but uh, so what I did after reading that book is, well, from a CMMS perspective, because that's what I am, I'm, I'm that guy by default. Uh, how can I put those three fields on the work order screen? No, um, it's easy to add fields to a screen. Uh, some would say, hey, just hang on a moment. Let's don't add any fields. Uh, we already have a failure code hierarchy. Well, the problem is uh, trying to fit this exact design into the existing failure code hierarchy creates a very large, uh, I'll call it tree root system. Uh, you could have up to 100,000 or 200,000 boxes when you get done. And so it didn't make sense to me. Uh, I stepped back from the design and, and realized the hierarchy adds no value. In fact, it could make it worse. But we're talking about the ability to quickly find the codes that you want. Okay. So the first uh, piece of information, when an asset fails, we've got the asset number on the work order. Everyone has that. That's the easy part. But the, the first part of the failure mode is the failed component. And so you need a field that captures the failed component. Now, there's several products out there that have the field. It's titled failed component, but there's no choice list. And so a person can just type uh, Ooga Booga or they could type pumpkin or, or apple or whatever, and they can misspell Ooga Booga. And so... There's, that's not a validated field, and it cannot be, it normally cannot not be used to aggregate data. And so you would stop right there. If that's your current system, that's your current design, and you're unable to capture a validated uh, component field value, then you need to rethink that. Um, I could go on, but let me give you a chance to jump in. Am I answering the question? Yes, sir. And you're so you're mentioning that they people should be using essentially like a drop list versus a free text, right? Uh, absolutely for for all of these fields because we're going to be doing an uh, analytical report, and I need to have the SQL be able to aggregate these uh, values. All right. Well, here's one more point you made me think of. The hierarchy concept leads the user to believe that these 100 components are typically only found in this one asset. And, and so they place them in the hierarchy below the uh, uh, asset or the asset equipment class. I do not follow that rule. I believe. Um, you have much overlap, and you can have uh, very uh, many components that are in multiple assets, but they're the same components. So th there's no real value in linking them to a higher level uh, object. Now, the next concern, if people are jumping ahead in the thought process, the next concern is, well, okay, John, are you going to have a very large component list and a validated dropdown? And the answer is yes, 
I'm going to have one that might have 500 entries in it. But hang on, don't be scared yet. <laughs> there's a there's a feature in the software that I use and could be possibly in many products and going by different names, but it's called the type ahead buffer. And so if, I'm going to try to explain this where you can visualize it. So I'm going to take my fingers here. If I hit a key on the keyboard, the drop-down list appears. And if I hit the letter H or letter B for bearing, um, it's going to show every word that's got a B in the front or anywhere in the body of the word. And so from, for five, from 500, it may jump down to uh, 120. Obviously, that's way too many still. But now I'm going to type the letter E. So I've got a B and an E. And when I type the E, it's now going to jump down to maybe uh, uh, 40. And now when I hit the letter A, it's going to dynamically change very quickly to uh, maybe 13. And there you go. I can see all 13 on the, on the screen and choose the failed component, and I'm good to go. I can put my feet up on the desk and get a cup of coffee. But a bang, but a boom. <laughs> now, I, I guess some people, like, I guess there's two concerns there. So the the one, I mean, when I used to work at uh, uh, one of the mining companies I worked at, the biggest, for me, the when I was analyzing the data, the number one failure, I guess, cause was unknown uh, with a subtext of also unknown. So I, I, I feel like it's not a software issue. It's a people issue. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, thanks for bringing that up, Rob. Um, uh, nowhere in any of my choices do I have the word other. Now, what I forgot to tell you is uh, that situation is going to come up. I, 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 wherever I go to implement this, um, we try to build a complete list, and there are some tricks to that. But sometimes um, the the component that needs to be in the list is not in the list. So I added a, a brand new field directly to the right of this component field, and it's titled missing component. It is not validated. So you could type in uh, Ooga Booga there and save the work order with the component field blank. But now you're typing, you tabbed over to this field to the right and you type in, hey, I think this should be in the component list. And obviously you missed it. Uh, and he saves the record and it, it goes into the system. At that instant uh, of work order being saved, uh, electronic workflow would route this to the reliability engineer or planner, whomever you have organizationally, and that planner would uh, review it and say, well, yeah, it's there in the list. Um, you just missed it. Or he would say, uh, yes, uh, this does qualify as a new entry, and so he authorizes it uh, being entered. And so he saves it. The moment the reliability engineer saves that brand-new uh, suggested component, the software would go two directions. It would go to the component list and officially add it. 
This is all done behind the scenes automatically. And more importantly, it would come back to this work order and properly populate the failed component field. So isn't that magical? <laughs> it seems that way. So John, I guess for me, when I look at CMMS or I, I look at CMMS issues, it's not the actual software itself. It's the processes in place that companies have around the software. Do you have any thoughts on how companies could improve that process? So we have to back up and ask the, uh, the leadership, uh, what are your objectives for asset management? What Number two, uh, do you have a CMMS utilization plan? What do you want to be doing with this product? And number three, uh, maybe for whatever reason, you can only do a limited amount of functionality at this moment, but hey, you would like to do better things down the road, so we make a long-range plan. Oh, that's fine. But Okay, so, uh, another way to answer your question is um, uh, so, some cu customers uh, come out and say it right up front, you know, uh, we, we don't believe the CMMS will ever mm -hmm. be capable of performing failure analysis. In other words, they're saying we are only only going to rely on tribal knowledge, tribal knowledge, right? Talking to people and reading the uh, text fields, perhaps. And um, all the power to them. Um, uh, I wish them the best of luck. It's just uh, they will be limited in performing analytics and managing by exception with that approach. So the other concern, I'm, I'm trying to read your mind, the other concern could be that, well, who, who is going to enter this data? You know, we have uh, our very busy, very busy staff. Uh, the techs uh, are already complaining about the amount of screen time. And so we have to uh, carefully set up uh, who enters what data, what pieces of the failure mode, at what points in the work order process. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this is um, people want to know what's in it for them. And so we would uh, do our best in a workshop to explain to the working level and any other stakeholder who has interest in this area uh, how the analytic would be used to identify the worst offenders and can, uh, in, provide continuous improvement in asset performance. And this is the I believe the number one process to, to uh, provide that benefit and it will help guarantee that uh, your company will stay in business for a long time and we all stay employed. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that that's the one step that a lot of companies are lacking is that feedback. Like you either see it as maybe, well, usually it's a separate process. So the reliability engineer is looking at the data and then the guy on the shop floor who's putting the data in, he never hears anything back. So he doesn't understand how important or if it's important at all. Correct. Now, the, one of the other keys that you mentioned there, John, was the fact that there's different levels of the organization entering different pieces of data at different steps. Yes. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, I do. Thank you. And, and at some point, Rob, we probably need to identify the, the three fields itself. 
Well, let's go there now because that is needed for this question. And so we already mentioned the failed component. Now, behind that is the component problem. So a, a, a standard CMMS product is only capturing the asset problem code. And, th and that's fine. And that's useful. But to properly capture the failure mode, we need the component and the component problem. Now, you could stop there. But if this is a highly, uh, high, highly critical asset, high priority asset with uh, high risk, you may want to take it one step further and perform a, um, a simpler uh, root cause analysis. You need to identify the cause, uh, such as lack of lubrication or uh, maybe operational error or part storage problem, uh, installation problem. And these are the cost codes, and I've got a, a hierarchy that I've put in place to make it easy to uh, capture the cost code. So now, who's going to put this data in? That's your real question here. Well, if I'm the maintenance tech, uh, obviously I need you to train me, Rob, that there's a new field on the screen titled failed component, and I need to put that in there um, at job completion. And I'll, yeah, I'm glad to put that in. I mean, I worked on the darn thing. I, I know the component I touched. I may have uh, uh, taken that component out completely and set it aside. Uh, it's probably of no value. H however, the reliability engineer may want to look at it, so I'm not going to toss it in the dumpster yet. Um, but I'm not normally going to re repair it. Uh, Okay, so I've got that, and I put that failed component. I get it in the drop-down list. There it is, and we're good to go. Now, um, I this the next part is the pro component problem. I would say 60% uh, of the time, the technician would have a pretty good guess as to what the component problem was. If it's a, a tire on your car, the answer would be um, uh, uh, wear and tear. You, you start to lose rubber on the tire over a period of time and miles run, yeah? Uh, miles run. If it's um, aging related, you, you have some hoses in your car engine area that um, just after uh, uh, 10 years will start to sh show some aging and need to be replaced, if not sooner. So those are two choices, and the tech can normally answer those. You know? Well, the problem, uh, that, I was jumping ahead to the cause. The problem would be uh, a cracked hose, or it would be um, uh, reduced thread there on the tire. So uh, and then the cause was what I just mentioned, uh, wear and tear and, and uh, aging. Now, so I've got a component uh, problem list that's got maybe uh, 15 choices in it. It's uh, it's not 500 like the failed components. I've come up with a concept whereby I believe I can uh, put together a standard component problem list uh, by industry in 15 to 20 choices and meet 99% of all situations. You know, stuck opens, uh, stuck closed. Um, erosion corrosion whatever and and meet the needs um and i not I, in the workshop environment i would uh, definitely go into that in deeper discussion and show it plenty of examples uh as to what i mean 
So the so to wrap up now, the tech can enter the component problem. Now, when we get to the cause code, if it's a simple cause, such as uh, aging and wear and tear, he can put that in. But if it's um, if it's not those two, if there's no uh, tornado or hurricane that caused this thing to fail, then it's going to be a human factor issue. At this point, the tech is done. We won't ask him to go any further. And so we now go into a cause field number two. I have three cause fields. Cause field one is the high level we just mentioned, the wear and tear, aging, and then force majeure, and then a human factor, which in effect is another, as you mentioned earlier. Human, yeah, so human factor. Now there's all sorts of humans. You could have, um, it could be the buyer who bought uh, improper material. It could be uh, the shipper who shipped the material that wasn't properly tied down on the flatbed. It bounced around and sort of damaged the bearings. I don't know. It could be the, uh, the warehouseman who improperly stored this uh, part in the warehouse, and it could have been damaged by a fork truck. Who knows? It could be the installer who installed this uh, equipment day one, um, not following installation procedures. It could be the uh, operator who operated the equipment outside of uh, thresholds, allowed boundaries. It could be the maintainer who induced the failure. But it could also be a procedure writer who wrote a very poor uh, operating guide for the operator. And it could be the uh, same or different procedure writer or planner who wrote a poor uh, job plan. And so these are all people. Um, and it's, this sometimes, sometimes people call this a defect elimination, but uh, this is these types of defects that can become bigger deal over time and add up and uh, you need to go after them. On critical assets, uh, high priority assets, uh, sometimes you need to get the reliability in engineer involved and he would uh, be responsible for answering uh, these questions that we just went over as to what caused the, uh, the failure of this part and asset. Yeah, that, that's definitely something that could happen after or during the or after the teardown of the equipment. Uh -huh. So I guess, John, before we get you out of here, I want to ask you a couple questions. And the first one's going to be, what are your top tips for like, let's say our listeners, they're out there and they're going, you know, our CMMS isn't working how we need it to. What are some top tips that you have for them? Okay. Uh, gather the stakeholders together. Anyone who has interest in uh, operational excellence and asset management, and especially the reliability uh, people. And we start with a mission vision statement. Uh, and then um, what are your objectives uh, long-term? What are, what are your goals? What uh, metrics are you trying to achieve? And then... Then we look at the uh, the plant or systems that they are running. Specifically, where are your current problems? Are you comfortable with your current operation and, and management of those systems? 
Um, do you believe that you have proper uh, OEE in place to uh, for the uh, support this uh, manufacturing line? Uh, sometimes the conversation gets in, they ask the consultant, well, which software is best? Um, quite frankly, I many of them are similar nowadays, but even if you call it an EAM or CMMS, even the low-end products are already connected to the handheld. And so uh, I've, I've now come down to one criteria, which uh, identifies uh, CMMS as being uh, a substance, and that is configurability, because very few organizations know what they want day one, and even two, three years later, they're still looking to improve. And so if you can quickly configure that software on site without even bringing in a consultant, then you're a step ahead of the game. And, by, and lastly, by define configurability, it's the ability to alter a, a, a screen, alt, add a field to the database, maybe even add a brand new screen altogether, uh, create a brand new report. And when the vendor does show up and say, hey, you are on an old version, it's time to upgrade, any configuration you've done previously would automatically be included in that upgrade. And that's the definition of a product that has configurability. Okay, but coming back to your question, um, what are some tips and tricks here for proper implementation and operation? Uh, many customers only focus on basic processes and that's fine, but uh, you gotta keep in mind, if you only have a basic process, you may not uh, reap significant return on investment. And so I talk about advanced processes quite a bit. And in the workshop, I would explain that to the customer. Here's five advanced processes you might want to consider over time and see if you can uh, set up the ro necessary roles in your staff to support those. And so uh, do you have planners and schedulers? Uh, are, do you do plan to capture actual labor hours? Well, uh, what do you mean you're not going to capture actual part issues? Um, are you linking uh, purchase orders to the work order um, to get a total cost? Are you capturing failure codes? Uh, because you can't do failure analytics like we just got done discussing without the failure codes. The core team needs to uh, answer these questions and set up the proper roles and then procedures. In, in a perfect world, you have a business analyst who conducts periodic uh, data and process audits, and he would enter, he or she would interview the working level mm -hmm. on a regular basis to uh, verify or validate that, validate that they're following the process, and maybe even do some spot training along the way. So, John, are you? Do you have anything to plug? Do you want to like people? To, obviously, if they're listening, you put out some good stuff on LinkedIn. They should follow you there. Are you going to be at any more conferences this year? Uh, yes, uh, in August, uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, the venue is titled Maximal World, sponsored by Reliability Web, and um, the uh, operator of that venue has uh, given me a three-hour uh, short course on the topic of key elements of an asset management system, which is also the topic of my brand new book, which should be released in mid uh, midsummer. So the key elements of an asset management system, again, from a CMMS perspective, 
but with heavy emphasis on advanced processes, which give any organization the, the greatest potential return on investment. Awesome. So when you when that book comes out, let me know for sure, and we'll have you back on the show so we can talk about it. That'd be fine. Awesome. So, John, you know, thanks for coming on, and, and hopefully I'll see you again this year. All right. Take care, Rob. Thank you. Uh, everyone who's still listening, I appreciate you guys listening. 